it comes down to what you think uh, money is. And money is really a zero-sum game. We're not going to walk around in the world with thousands or tens of thousands of monies. Hello there from the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a bonus show for you. Very interesting one. I've got Samson Mao and Vitalik Buterin on to discuss the philosophical differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. But before that, I do have a very quick message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and earn money on your Bitcoin. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. If you're interested in checking it out, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have Kraken. With their world-class security and customer service, Kraken is the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. With Kraken.com, Kraken Pro, Margin Trading, Futures, and their OTC desk, they really do have every trading option covered for you. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And let's also talk about Sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming. And guess what? They accept Bitcoin. With their sportsbook and online casino, they really have every gaming option covered for you. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. And lastly, but not least today, we have Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security, with a bull run now in motion. It is time to protect your Bitcoin from every type of vulnerability. And with Casa, they have a product for every Bitcoiner. They've got Casa Gold, which offers triple the security of a hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get a full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, their best in class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so onto the show, and it's a massive bonus show for you this weekend. I've got Samson Mao from Blockstream and Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, to discuss this ongoing debate an ongoing warfare between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So, I'm sure most of you have seen the debate and what's been raging on Twitter over the past few days, maybe a week or so, and there's been some question raised about the total supply of ETH, but really, this is just the latest in a long string of debates and discussions and fights between Bitcoiners and Ethereum people. So if we focus in on supply gate itself, it's probably the most key fundamental part of Bitcoin is that it is a hard-capped 21 million supply and that users operating a node can simply audit this, and this is what makes Bitcoin hard, sound money. So, when there's so much confusion and a lack of consensus around what Bitcoin sees as a most trivial task, it causes a huge debate to flare up. Often these debates on Twitter and Reddit get a bit technical and they're a bit hard to follow, and anyone who listens to my show, you know, I always say this, I'm not technical, and I always want to make it a little bit easier for people to understand it's very easy for people like samson and vitalik and other people to debate on twitter the key technical reasons but there are a lot of people who get into let's say broadly cryptocurrency maybe they hear about bitcoin or they hear about ethereum and they just don't get this shit because you know what for some of us it's really fucking complicated so i wanted them on i wanted them to discuss it but at a level that i can understand and for most of it they did most of it i understood what they were talking about now, some of you may not have listened to my show before, so let's just be clear. I'm a Bitcoiner. I don't have much interest in Ethereum at all, but also Shinobi did just change my interest slightly. If you listen to my episode 250, 
he talked about all different types of Bitcoin still being Bitcoin, and he included wrap Bitcoin as part of this. So it is a use case for Bitcoin, whether you like it or not. And therefore, whether I have interest in Ethereum or not, it's important that I just keep a close eye on it, even if I'm not going to use it myself. Now, also, as a Bitcoiner, I expect there's some people who think I will just be pro-Bitcoin in this and I will join Samson's side and just kind of work on attacking Vitalik. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to try and be as impartial as I possibly can whilst letting people know my you know, bias, but try and be fair to both parties. Call them out when I thought they were being unfair or they are talking bullshit and just try and make some progress with the debate. I did the best I could. If you think I was unfair, you think I got this wrong, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, but I, I, think, I think I was pretty fair. Okay, so just before we move on to the show... Also, you might want to check out my other podcast. It's called Defiance. I've released the first in a four-part series on there called 1,333 Days. It's this fascinating story of this band who were in a bus crash when they were on tour in 2015. It was a fatal bus crash. Pretty, pretty crazy story. So it's worth checking out. You can find that at defiance.news. And as I said, if you've got any questions for me, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, welcome Samson, welcome Vitalik. How are you both? Vitalik first, how are you, man? I've been, I've been good, thank you. Hmm. Are you well, Samson? Not too bad. Excited right. to have this chat. Yes, this is very exciting. Okay, so, firstly, I, obviously Vitalik, I have a Bitcoin show, but this is more about kind of Bitcoin alongside Ethereum. And the reason I'm happy to do it is because there are people wrapping Bitcoin on Ethereum and I have used stablecoins and Ethereum, and there's like warfare at the moment. So I, I think it's a discussion worth having. I've got a bunch of questions. Some of them you're both aware of, some of them you're not. Uh, the way I'm going to do it, I've got a stopwatch here. I'm going to try and keep it, like when I put a question there, I'll direct it to one of you, and I'll say like, try and keep it to two to three minutes. I think if I think you're going on, I'll try and slow you down, and, and I'll give each of you a chance to reply. And um the really important thing, Vitalik, because you won't have listened to many of my shows, my show is directed to people who aren't the most technical. So ideally, I I want you to keep answers to people that 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 really don't understand the complexities of this system. So try and explain it in a way so they will understand it. Because I do get people coming to me when I talk to them about Bitcoin. They're like, well, what about Ethereum? And really, I can't give good technical explanations. So that's one of the things I'm going to try and keep you to. Uh, we'll try and not do any interrupting. Definitely try and um, just give each other a fair time. I am a Bitcoiner. So anyone listening, I am a Bitcoiner. I don't hold Ethereum. I held it in the past. I've made money on Ethereum. But my show for the last year to 18 months has been Bitcoin only. I wouldn't say I'm a maxi, but I wouldn't say I'm far off. But I will try to be as objective and fair as possible. And I am happy to criticize Bitcoin as well. So does that also sound okay? Sure. It's okay to me. Right, okay. So, I'm going to start with you, Vitalik. I'm going to put it to you first, and this question is going to go to you. Vitalik, why do you think there is this open warfare now between Bitcoin and Ethereum? And I know it's been going on for a long time, but why do you think it exists? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there's been this uh, kind of a broader kind of fragmentation of the uh, crypto space over maybe the past uh, 10 years or so. Like if you remember the uh, what was then called the Bitcoin space back in uh, of 2010 to 2013, like 
the Bitcoin space then was very diverse in a lot of ways, right? Like if you remember on Bitcoin Talk, like you could if you go on say the politics and society section, you know, you would have capitalists and you would have socialists and you would have people debating each other. There are uh, kind of more like more pure Bitcoin people. There would be uh, kind of what were then called uh, altcoiners, and there were kind of all sorts of uh, these different viewpoints. And even uh, in terms of like how much the uh, medium of exchange aspect versus the store of value aspect matters in uh, Bitcoin, and. Up until around the end of 2013, I mean, I think uh, there was definitely this kind of feeling of uh, kind of harmony in the crypto space, but it definitely masked these uh, kind of differences that I think we didn't even realize existed at the time. And then around 2014 or so, kind of things started diverging, right? So like the Ethereum sale happened, and I think uh, the Ethereum uh, kind of project launching in the sale was probably the first big uh, kind of non-Bitcoin asset to gain anywhere close to kind of the level of interest uh, in the crypto community that it did. And so it kind of convinced a lot of people that, you know, for better or for worse, uh, cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin are not a toy anymore. And around the same time, we started seeing Bitcoin having its uh, kind of big block versus small block split, and that would uh, kind of later lead into its own holy war, right? So I guess there have always been these uh, kind of differences in values within the space. And like, I definitely think, feel like, you know, like say myself in 2013, I definitely kind of overestimated the extent to which uh, kind of the entire space uh, shares my values. So like, for example, back when I wrote uh, my first post uh, where I kind of firmly took the uh, anti-maximalist position, this was um, a post in 2013 I wrote called uh, In Defense of Alternate Cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, remember that I was uh, refuting Daniel Kravis and... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And when I wrote that, like, I felt genuine surprise that, you know, there were people who did not think like myself, where I thought that, you know, if you're if you're in favor of Bitcoin, you should be in fa- uh, you should be in favor of crypto as a whole. Right. And the and kind of the team is not Bitcoin. The team is crypto. And that was uh, kind of my mentality back then. And, you know, Bitcoin and Litecoin and Peercoin and these new things coming in are kind of marching together as allies. And I would later see that like Daniel Kravis, for example, did not see it that way. A lot of other people did not see it that way. And. I'm sure that's true from a uh, from a lot of different sides of this uh, kind of fr- uh, fragmentation as well, um, and I guess since then you just have uh, kind of different groups of people in the crypto space that have these uh, kind of somewhat different visions of kind of what crypto is fundamentally about in certain ways. Samson, what about you? Why do you think this war is going on between Bitcoiners and Ethereum people? So I wouldn't qualify it exactly as a war. It's more that uh, Bitcoiners just have a disdain for Ethereum and other pointless shitcoins. So, I mean, it, it comes down to what you think uh, money is. And money is really a zero-sum game. We're not going to walk around in the world with uh, thousands or tens of thousands of monies down the road. Uh, we have, even in the fiat world, we have reserve currencies and you have stores of value like gold, there's only going to be a handful, if that, that exists uh, a couple hundred years down the road. So it's either Bitcoin or it's not going to be (laughs) anything else. And I think that's why there is this divide, but it's not really a warfare, it's just critiquing. And if you look at Pierre Richard's thing, it's more like he's trying to help Ethereum 
by talking about the supply and the ability to audit the supply. But well, I think wait, so moreover, I think it has to the disdain towards Ethereum has more to do with uh, how it's marketing itself. So if you remember, Peter, when we first talked for the very, very first time when you first started your show, uh, we talked about Bcash. And mm -hmm. I said, there's nothing wrong with Bcash as a technology. The problem is how it's marketed to people. And you know, if the, uh, Ethereum is marketed as many things. It's a world computer, it's uh, code is law, unstoppable code, and all that. And I have to give credit to Vitalik. Vitalik is an excellent marketer, you know, probably better than Justin Sun. And uh, ultimately, it's the promises that it's making. Is it able to deliver on those promises? And I think it's not. And that's what Bitcoiners are critiquing. So I'm going to put two points to you there, Samson, then I'll pass it back to Vitalik. So you talked about money. Is it not a good idea, therefore, to have Ethereum because we have competition for Bitcoin, therefore it hopefully would improve Bitcoin because there is a challenger? And secondly, when you talk about how it markets itself, you know, if we're trying to be fair here, there are many people when Bitcoin first existed believed it was peer-to-peer -peer cash and now it's a store of value. And, and some will argue different points, but it does appear that Bitcoin has changed its narrative at some point. And also, what is wrong with a pivot? What is wrong with something? You, you start out with one kind of project and it becomes something else. So I'll let you answer those questions, then I'll put it to Vitalik. Well, I think Bitcoin is still peer-to-peer -peer cash. It's just some people, like Roger, have a very, very poor understanding of what cash is. Cash is something that you have, and it's a bare thing. But I think he conflates cash with you know, taking a few dollars to buy coffee and therefore it should be cheap and easy because I can carry a few dollars in my wallet. But when you scale that up to millions and millions of dollars, you have to transport pallets of paper money. And that requires security, uh, logistics, and, and a ton of things. So ca Bitcoin is cash, but it's cash that will function when you need to transport massive amounts of it, not just uh, a couple dollars worth. And to your second question, like, why is it okay? Why is it not okay to pivot? I think it's okay to pivot and evolve, but there needs to be a healthy disclaimer on the thing and saying this is experimental. But I think a lot of uh, the Ethereum people are saying, you know, Ethereum is money now and whatnot, and now it's competing with Bitcoin. But even myself, I'm not sure what Ethereum is or what it does or what it competes with. Is it a world computer or is it money? So Vitalik, what is Ethereum? I mean, I think uh, Ethereum is lots of things, and I think uh, kind of you should expect Ethereum to be lots of things. So, like one of the analogies that I would use is if you look at something like C right? It's a uh, highly general purpose tool. You know, it's a programming language. You can use it to um, build uh, games. You can use it to build different kinds of applications. You can use it to build Bitcoin and Ethereum clients, and you know, and so on and so forth. I definitely don't think Ethereum is anywhere close to being as generic as C++. Like, I think there are a kind of values in terms of, uh, you know, decentralization and sort of permissionlessness and, uh, and of all of these things that we care about that kind of Ethereum is uh, kind of more uniquely suitable to. Um, but at the same time, it's definitely more in that direction uh, than, say, Bitcoin, which is uh, much more application specific. Uh, so, and 
Ethereum definitely, you know, has always been the, uh, for example, a uh, platform for kind of financial applications. Like right now, we talk about DeFi, and if you look at the original Ethereum white paper, it never used the word DeFi. But you know, you see people talk the white paper talking about like financial contracts and uh, contracts for difference. In March 2014, wrote that uh, blog post on stable coins and uh, options and so on and so forth. Right, so. That kind, that aspect of it has sort of always been there. The aspect of using Ethereum for non-financial applications has always been there. So, and of domain names probably being one of the first uh, and kind of very early examples. I think I cited domain names in the white paper, but even if I didn't, you know, that was definitely like domain names are this uh, a kind of very early proof that says blockchains are useful for things other than money, right? And that a kind of desire to generalize was one of the big factors that motivated to the goal of kind of opening things up all the way to a yeah, programming language. And so you have this uh, really general purpose platform and people are going to kind of do lots of things with it, right? And if now if we try to kind of zoom into this kind of question of, you know, what is ETH the asset? Um, I mean, first of all, ETH the asset is, uh, and how people think about ETH the asset is definitely something that can pivot, you know? Like, I definitely did not initiate the whole ETH is money thing. The Ethereum Foundation did not initiate the ETH is money thing. That's something that really did come from the outside, um, and the way that I look about, at it is there is this uh, symbiotic relationship between Ethereum, the platform, and ETH, the asset. So, like, for example, if the Ethereum, the platform, is not secure, then ETH, the, uh, ETH, the asset can't uh, maintain a value. If ETH, the asset uh, can't have a price, then uh, attacking uh, Ethereum, the blockchain, is going to be very, uh, very easy. Um, if there's a lot of usage of Ethereum, the blockchain, that creates transaction fees, which uh, contributes to uh, the price of ETH, the asset. Uh, um, if you have uh, ETH, the asset having value, that provides uh, kind of what we call economic bandwidth. That you can use that ETH and, say, lock it up in smart contracts and use it as collateral for things, which also helps usage. Okay. So is ETH is ETH the asset money? It depends on what your definition of money is. And I personally am like, I'm a fan of uh, kind of what rationalists call uh, tabooing words, which is this idea that, um, you know, if people uh, kind of argue over the definition of words too much, you should try to uh, kind of get everyone to express their points without using that word and uh, try to kind of ban the word from the conversation. Um, and I think like the word money does... Uh, kind of combine together a lot of different concepts. So like, for example, people talk about, you know, unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value. Uh, for unit of account, I mean, ETH is not that, Bitcoin is not that either. Um, for medium of exchange, um, I mean, Bitcoin gets uh, you, gets used for that, and ETH gets used for that sometimes. So like, uh, for example, uh, e- uh a couple, a few months ago, I actually uh, used ETH to uh, pay for dinner at a uh, at a restaurant when I was at a uh, hackathon in London. So you know th- those kinds of things happen. There's a lot of things that uh, kind of charge in ETH. Um, ETH has store of value. That's definitely something that people do use ETH for. Um, there's also this uh, kind of ETH as gas uh, use case um, that basically. ETH is the medium of exchange that is used for uh, transaction fees, and with uh, okay, you know. well, so so what we're saying is, when we talk about Bitcoin, we talk about it is a uh, store of value and a medium of exchange, and you're saying essentially Ethereum can be the same. Okay, I, I accept that argument, um, 
but you are also talking about the fact that it can be used as uh, like gas, which is a way to fuel applications. Okay, so I understand your points there. Um, for me, like trying to keep things simple, trying to think about the way I'd be down the frame, down the pub with my friends, and they're like, "Pete, what's this Ethereum thing?" And if I said it's money, they're in their mind, it's something they it's a medium of exchange. Okay, they can use it to pay for something. Okay, um, okay, I accept your points there, Samson. You you shook your head. What is the point you want to make or question you want to throw back at Vitalik? Well, I think uh, Vitalik said Bitcoin is not uh, a unit of account, but Bitcoin is a unit of account. So you have Satoshis, and that is the unit account of the Lightning Network. And Bitcoin is evolving in all three fronts at the same time as money. So it is a sort of value already. It's becoming a medium of exchange, and it is unit of account. It's just the unit of account is not big enough for day-to-day things yet, the Satoshi level. And I yeah, think, cool. yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to say, I, I would argue against that because I, I still, whenever I'm using Bitcoin, I'm always trans kind of doing the exchange rate conversion in my head to know, like I've got a game of poker tonight mm-hmm. and I know like I've got to do the conversion in my head to figure out what each hand is worth, even though we're playing in Bitcoin. For me, unit account means it's like naturally used as the, as the, as the currency. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the standard uh, kind of economic definition of a unit of account. It's something that prices are set in, something that contracts are made in. Because like just having a unit, like Tesla has a unit as well, right? And Tesla isn't money. Yeah, yeah but if you look at how Lightning tippers are playing with it, they're using sats to tip. Uh, people are using sats to denominate uh, a lot of things these days. It's just a matter of time. But I agree that it's not hmm. uh, usable for a poker game probably. All right, so listen, let's get into some of the meets, uh, some of the other things. I've got a couple of interesting questions for you both to begin with. Okay, Vitalik, this is a this is a challenging question for you. Do you ever feel like Ethereum has become a much more challenging project or idea than you originally envisaged, and potentially you've been off more than you can chew, and it gets to the point where there's no turning back, like? Do you ever feel like that? I mean, I definitely freely admit that, for example, Ethereum 2.0 is kind of much harder than we expected to um, implement from a technical perspective. Like, I definitely don't think that we discovered any fundamental flaws that make it impossible, and I think it will be finished. It's just um, you know, a matter of time, and it's actually been kind of progressing quite quickly lately. Um, from an application perspective point of view, like... I mean, I feel like uh, kind of Ethereum's use in different sectors is something that can sort of rise and fall almost independently. Um, so, you know, if uh, Ethereum tries to kind of get into one space and it turns out it's actually not useful for that space, then fine. You know, those applications will uh, not go anywhere. Meanwhile, kind of the other sectors will keep going. So what is the roadmap looking like for the delivery of uh, ETH2? And I know it's been going on for quite some time. Um, there's been a lot of delays. I am aware of it. What's it looking like now for delivery? Yeah, so one of the exciting uh, pieces of news from about two weeks ago was the launch of this uh, Madasha testnet. Um, that's uh, the largest uh, kind of multi-client uh, f- uh, testnet of uh, Ethereum 2.0, kind of phase zero. Uh, so this is the phase that uh, kind of introduces the basic scaffolding, introduces the proof of stake parts. Um, it does not yet include sharding. Um, sharding starts in uh, starts in phase one. 
But for sharding, for example, like the spec is uh, very close to finished, uh, so it's uh, just a matter of uh, kind of waiting for implementers to uh, kind of feel like they've done enough on the phase zero side and and to move on to phase one. Uh, so I think people are estimating a kind of a couple of years um, at the to kind of fully finish uh, the roadmap at this point. Um, That's we'll a long see. time, right? It is, uh, though on the other hand, it's uh, less time than the amount of time that we've uh, already spent getting to this point. Yeah. Will, um, I've, I've noticed in the last week following all the YAM discussions, and I don't really spend a lot of time looking at DeFi and such, but I noticed that of, there was a big rise in the price of transactions on the Ethereum network. Does ETH2 solve this? It does, yeah. Uh, so... Like transaction fees are basically a, a kind of supply and demand thing, right? Like if the, base, the supply is kind of how much space there is in a block, the demand is how many people want to send transactions. And so, you know, if you increase the supply, then kind of the price will fall, right? That's a kind of mm-hmm. standard economics 101. And you can actually verify this experimentally. Like I've, I wrote this ETH research post when you look at kind of specific moments where uh, miners uh, kind of bumped up the Ethereum gas limit previously, and it made transaction fees kind of go down by roughly the same, uh, the same amount um, around the same time. Um, and ETH2 plans to increase transaction capacity by, you know, maybe a factor of about 100. Um, another technology that's uh, likely going to come much sooner than ETH2 is um, our kind of preferred layer two scaling technique, which is uh, rollups. Uh, so, you know, we have ZK rollups, we're going to get optimistic rollups soon. And those can scale uh, kind of up to about 3000 transactions a second or so. Uh, so, yeah, and I think either of those techniques are definitely going to make uh, transaction fees much cheaper again. I have a question. I thought your preferred yeah. uh, method of scaling was your uh, your version of Lightning. What was it called again? Raiden? Uh, well, there's st- there's state channels, and then there's Plasma. Those are two separate techniques, right? Well, what what is Raiden? A uh, Raiden, Raiden is like basically a Lightning Network clone. Okay, but well, I thought that was your preferred thing. And didn't they raise a ton of money to deliver that by selling a token? Um, they did, yeah. Um, I don't think I don't think Raiden was ever kind of anointed as Ethereum's preferred champion in any sense. Like I think Ethereum has always kind of been fairly pluralist in terms of kind of pushing multiple champions at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what what is a ETH two? Is that a proof of stake chain or is it just another proof of work chain that continues on? ETH two is a sharded proof of stake chain. Well, we're going we're going we're going into the world of I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't even know what sharding is. Or but the reason this stuff's important is because most people don't understand this stuff. Like they'll see you guys arguing it out on Twitter, and there's other people who can jump in the discussions and join in. But most of the time, someone like me is just like I've got no idea what you're talking about. So I want to keep this a bit bit simpler today. Um, we can get into the juicier stuff that maybe you want to ask towards the end okay listen samson with regards to bitcoiners do you think we are ever too harsh in our criticism too protective of a single use of a blockchain and and don't give enough fair opportunity for other people to actually explore other ideas no that's not the case at all i i mean the whole idea with bitcoin is it's supposed to be immutable not changeable so if the foundation is shifting all the time and changing or breaking or getting hacked, then it's impossible to build anything on it. That's why the foundation of a house has to be stable. The, like the whole reason that uh, Bitcoin is saying wrapped to be used in Ethereum is because it is stable and reliable. 
that's why people like it seems to be Ethereans prefer using wrapped Bitcoin to Ether to do their DeFi stuff. Um, I, I don't I think, think they do the, both. I think they do both. In fairness, well, they do both, but I mean, it's growing as they are bragging about. They, they're saying, you know, we have so much Bitcoin on Ethereum now. But the point is, uh, it needs to be stable and immutable for that. So you can build a lot of things on top of Bitcoin, but you can't just shift the rule set around and say, okay, uh, fees are too high. We should do something because uh, you know it's not nice to people. You know, we just don't care. Bitcoin is elemental. It doesn't have uh, feelings or anything, and it cannot be easily changed. It just is the way it is. And you either choose to use it or you don't. But you're free to build anything on top of it. So you can have the Lightning Network. You can have the Liquid Network or whatever you want. You can even take it and wrap it and use it on Ethereum. But the base layer is not changeable. So, Vitalik, I put out a tweet today regarding um, DeFi. Actually, I'll go back a step. I use Bitcoin, so I'm a Bitcoiner, right? And I uh, use it as a savings technology, personally, so I hold Bitcoin to save. Um, with regards to my company, let's refer to my two podcasts as a media business. Um, over 50% of my assets now are in Bitcoin, and held in Bitcoin, just because I'm fearful of what's going to happen to um, uh, the pound locally. And I also transact in Bitcoin. So I invoice some people in Bitcoin and I pay people in Bitcoin. And I do that because I trust it. I implicitly trust the value will hold pretty well. And I trust the security of the network. One of the things that stood out for me on Ethereum, which gives me a little less trust in it. So the thing I said about DeFi, it just seems like a big game. It doesn't seem like serious. It seems like a big game. Also, I get a little bit scared about the hacks I see in Ethereum. It feels like people can, and again, remember, I'm not technical, but they can hack smart contracts or smart contracts can break. And there seems to be a lot of times where I hear about 10 million, 20 million, 50 million getting locked in a smart contract forever. I've also heard about rollbacks and such. So do you, would you say that fair criticism of Ethereum and can you see why maybe I trust Bitcoin over it? I mean, I think uh, that's, the important thing with uh, Ethereum, right, is that uh, kind of Ethereum is freedom, right? It's a platform where people can kind of go and build things. And if you have a platform that respects freedom, then, you know, sometimes people will use their freedom to do stupid things. And that, and so, like, you're going to see some smart contracts that are written at a much lower standard of quality than, say, I would be okay with. And there's nothing that Ethereum as a network can do to stop that. And, and so, you know, you have applications that sometimes uh, kind of do crazy things on chain. But at the same time, if you are a user of one of the applications that doesn't uh, do crazy things, then you can just uh, kind of peacefully continue doing your uh, not crazy and productive things and kind of not really worry about those other things that are happening, right? So, like, if you think, look from the point of view of, say, someone who just uh, uses Ethereum because they want to hold stable coins, like, say, someone who just wants to hold DAI, right? Like, you know, the fact that some other unrelated application somewhere in a corner breaks does not change die at all, right? It doesn't uh, kind of really cause harm to die. Die just is die, and you can uh, kind of keep moving die around. Uh, so, like, I basically the fact that there exist specific things on uh, Ethereum that sometimes go crazy, like, it, it's the equivalent, say, of, you know, like Mt. Gox getting hacked, right? Like, you know, you could. 
you can imagine someone say like, you know, Mt. Gox gets hacked, therefore Bitcoin is totally unreliable. But, you know, the reality is um, that if you did not uh, put your Bitcoins into Mt. Gox, then, you know, you as a Bitcoiner just uh, can, can just kind of keep Bitcoining as, along as though uh, that situation didn't happen. I, I don't think that's a fair comparison between Ethereum and Mt. Gox, but I understand the point you're making, but I don't, I don't, I think that's slightly different because, well, Samson, you should get ahead. I'll let, you'll do a better job than me. I know this. Well, first, I take issue with the Ethereum is freedom statement that Vitalik just made. Uh, I, I don't think Ethereum is freedom at all. I think Bitcoin is freedom. If you look at the look at things from the perspective of the DAO hack, you know technically he just ex- he just followed the rules and took money from the system, and then you guys rolled it back. From the perspective of that guy, uh, you might call him a hacker. Was that freedom? And what about the people that disagreed with the decision to roll back? Uh, the people that created, uh, that maintained the original chain and called it ETC. I don't think that's freedom for them either. What you have here is a, a very centralized system that's run by, you know, a small cartel of people that can dictate changes. And that's not really the definition of freedom at all. That's the definition of serfdom. Vitalik, do you, re- do you regret the rollback of the DAO hack? I think all in all, it was a uh, kind of necessary event at that time. And I mean, I definitely don't think that uh, kind of this argument that, you know, we did one thing once and therefore that somehow taints the Ethereum ecosystem forever is kind of correct at all, right? Like if you look like you, if you look at how Ethereum governance worked in general in 2016 versus in 2020, like there's a lot of different signs that just show, right? In 2016 was a much smaller community, very few participants, uh, much more kind of concentrated participants, I think. Uh, the Ethereum Foundation was basically running uh, kind of uh, both of the Ethereum clients, like maybe Parity was kind of just starting um, around that time, and so it, like there were much fewer people that kind of needed to agree on making a decision, and there was generally a broader kind of consensus that you know this is a fairly new system, and you know there there are things that you can do in new systems that you can't do in established systems but if you fast forward say even 2 years into the future right if you remember the parity wallet this was um a big multi-sig wallet that got written uh, with kind of bad code and it got hacked and like i think it was 450,000 ether that got stuck and there were this there was this big debate where parity and other people tried really really hard to kind of push through a another one of these state intervention forks to make that uh basically reverse the effect the effects of the hack and uh, get the coins out and all of those uh, state intervention fork attempts failed right and so i think like that made it really clear that you know the dao is not this uh, kind of eternally binding precedent that people sometimes make it out to be and if you fast forward to 2020 i mean there's a lot of signs that the ecosystem has become much more diffuse right like if you even look at say the ethereum gas limit like the most recent uh, rise of the gas limit which is like similar to the bitcoin block size it got it rose from 10 million to 12 and a half million that was just completely initiated by mining pools and and miners without any involvement from this uh, kind of core dev cabal that people talk about, right? Like that's, I, I think like that whole situation just kind of clearly proves that, you know, there isn't this one single uh, kind of tightly coordinated group that controls the protocol. Like you even saw these very public uh, kind of disagreements in places like, like Twitter about that situation. So Samson, let's try and imagine back in the very early days of Bitcoin, you know, back in say, 2010, say an inflation bug was found or someone was able to inflate Bitcoin by 
you know, another 20 million and, and secure it themselves. Could you not see a scenario perhaps where people back in the early days of Bitcoin say, look, this is useless. We're here early. Let's roll it back. That's a hacker. And uh, could you not see a scenario where that maybe would happen there as well? Well, there was a bug that Satoshi rolled back. I think that's like uh, just two years after. But that was the infancy. And there's a key difference here, which is Bitcoin uh, was uh, created in a virgin birth. Like there was no pre-sale, no token minting. Uh, Satoshi didn't enrich himself from it. And this was the first of its kind. So it's kind of like Satoshi invented an airplane. But uh, I, I would hold Ethereum to a different standard, which is, you know, the airplane has been invented and you've made something that kind of looks like an airplane, but uh, I don't think it flies. But uh, you're just still shifting the, the sands around under the, the feet of the people, which is the reversal of the DAO. But I think you still have it. You, you're still tweaking parts of the system. You roll back the, uh, what do you call them, the ice ages or whatever, because you're supposed to have uh, went to proof of stake by now, right? I think that's the whole point of those um, the ice ages, right? But you just shift them forward. So you're still playing games and adjusting the system on the fly. And given that your whole origin story, Vitalik, is that you were upset because Blizzard nerfed your warlock because they wanted to adjust the, the game balance, uh, shouldn't you be against that kind of a change? So basically, you live long enough to become the villain. You live long enough to become the guy that's nerfing the warlock. See, see, uh, so if I'm trying to be fair, as fair as I can be, Samson, I, I've, and as somebody who listens and takes a lot of my advice or opinions from people in the Bitcoin community, I find less strength in this one. I, the, the DAO, I understand why people criticize it, but I could see mm -hmm. a scenario where something similar would happen in Bitcoin, and it, it would people would be okay with it. And I don't find the, I don't find the adding of the fact that there was a pre mine as a as a reason, because we don't know if Satoshi mm -hmm. will suddenly appear one day with all his Bitcoin and his rollback would have saved him. So I, can you understand why I, as someone trying to be objective, find a little bit less strength in that as, a, as an issue? Sure, but you can then focus on the failure to transition to proof of stake. That just well, keeps getting pushed up forward. Like, so, What's the point of having a rule if the rule is completely mutable? That's like saying, uh, mm. I'm going to stop drinking and you know I'll just mm. stop drinking next month. Vitalik, can you explain sure. that rule? Uh, so, sorry, sorry, Vitalik, just so people understand, explain what the rule is and mm -hmm. explain why, why it's been rolled back. Right. So the, the Ice Age is basically a rule that says um, that there, there is this uh, kind of exponentially growing time bomb inside of the Ethereum protocol where after, like, basically what happens is that the mining difficulty kind of starts going up slowly over time, but then that number, like, in the protocol kind of increases and it, has it's it has like a very tiny or no effect for the first kind of one or two years but then after about two years like basically this kind of number kind of starts blowing up to the point where it just makes the ethereum blockchain really slow and eventually comes close to stopping it right so the intention okay. of the ice age was basically as a kind of technique to force a the proof of stake transition but i think kind of it is important to sort of understand the nuances behind the technique like i think the goal of the technique was basically to avoid a situation where if there is the uh, uh, 
uh, if there is the the proof of stake switch, then uh, if someone tries to uh, kind of continue the proof of work chain, like basically, if there wasn't an ice age, there would be this kind of default pressure where, like, basically, if someone tried to make a lot of noise to for to stop the proof of stake transition from happening, then the proof of work chain would be this kind of default. It would not be the fork, and so people would be kind of more inclined to stay with it. Whereas if since there is an ice age. Like it's a more fair choice, right? Because the the proof of work chain by itself uh, is guaranteed to blow up every two years, and so if there is this split between proof of work and proof of stake, the proof of stake side has to have a hard fork, but the proof of work side has to also have a hard fork, right? So it's more of a a kind of fair choice between the two instead of this a kind of status quo bias toward proof of work. Okay, does it really matter? Because you guys hard fork all the time, so it, it doesn't really matter. You can change the rule set every time you hard fork. Well, the question I was going to ask Vitalik is if if the Ice Age isn't uh, enforceable now, why, why don't you just get rid of it and accept it? It sounds like to me it's something that has no purpose. I mean, people have definitely suggested that, and I think in practice it's definitely looking like it'll need like uh, maybe one more increase and uh, quite probably like just proof, like proof of stake is definitely kind of on the horizon now in a way that it wasn't say four or five years ago. So, you know, maybe if we took our knowledge now and we kind of put, uh, took that knowledge back to 2015 or 2016, I'm sure we would have uh, done the ice age thing very differently, but I guess at this point, you know, the change is relatively uh, kind of close to the horizon. And so it just makes less sense to kind of muck around on that fact aspect. Do you know what it does? It reminds me of the debt ceiling. <laughs> it reminds me of the debt ceiling. It kind of it exists for a reason, but you can get around it. Okay, I've got a couple of other interesting questions for you. I'm going to flip a couple of things to you. Okay, firstly, it's just a very simple question. Vitalik, do you see this as a world of Bitcoin and Ethereum or Bitcoin or Ethereum? I think I think it's very likely that we're going to see both Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of get quite prosperous going forward into the future. And are you interested in both projects? Like, are you still interested in Bitcoin? I mean, the most uh, kind of, by, I guess, uh, honesty um, in sp- um, revealing way of asking that question is if I hold Bitcoins. And, you know, yes, I do. I have a few hundred of them. I mean, definitely considerably less than what I have in uh, um, in ETH, but like, I still hold some Bitcoin. The Ethereum Foundation still holds some Bitcoin. And Samson, Samson, same to you, Bitcoin and Ethereum or Bitcoin or Ethereum? It's only Bitcoin, and it's I don't hold Bitcoin. any ETH. You um, don't hold any. I ETH. think most Bitcoiners don't hold any ETH. Actually, like, I have. I found half an ETH. <laughs> well, I have I one found- Litecoin that Charlie gave me too, but it's like more for sentimental purposes. But it, it goes back to the whole thing. Like Bitcoiners want sound money; they want something foundational, and Ethereum is just not that. It's just shifting all the time. Uh, the goalposts are moving. Uh, we don't like, like you don't even know the supply. I mean, should we talk about well, that? We, that's we, the, well, that's, that's on my list. We're going to come to the supply. We've got that on my list. Okay, then, Sam. So, well, why don't? Why do we care? You know, if we care about if we if we live in a world of freedom, we care about freedom. Why should we care if a bunch of people want to build an Ethereum, enjoy Ethereum? Why don't we just focus on Bitcoin and forget about it, and just ignore it? Like, what well, what harm is it doing to us? Well, functionally, I think uh, most people building on Bitcoin just focus on building on Bitcoin, and then we just kind of uh, entertain ourselves with uh, what Ethereum is doing. I think I, I I don't I don't think that's entirely fair. I think because uh, I know myself, I think we give them a lot of criticism. We give them a very harsh time. 
Like, should we just ignore and get on with our own thing? Like, are, are they harming anyone? Should we care? I think they are harming a lot of people. A lot of people are losing money um, on DeFi and everything. I, I don't feel there's enough uh, disclaimer being put on a lot of these projects. And I think Vitalik himself has endorsed a lot of these projects. I think he stopped now recently, but uh, a few years ago, he was still putting his name on various ICO projects and saying, you know, this is really cool. And I think for most of the Ethereum people, they always say everything is cool. And that just kind of baits in the noobs. I, I don't okay. think institutions or sophisticated investors are harmed because they can do the research, they can run the numbers. But I think a lot of retail people or uneducated investors will be harmed by what the Ethereum people are doing. I feel like would you I'm... say that's sorry? Let me tee that over time. Would you, would you say that's fair? That needs to be a little bit more warning because one of the things it seems to be there's a bit of a conflict is between immutability and smart contracts. Um, there seems to be a lot of potential problems with smart contracts that hmm. um, kind of cause a conflict with mm -hmm. immutability because once a mistake happens, you lose. So do you think there needs to be a, a if anything, is is Ethereum still potentially still should be considered perhaps in a beta stage? Uh, I mean, I guess there's there's a few points there. I feel like I want to kind of go through all of them. I have, as far as like smart contracts versus immutability, and I don't think it's a matter of smart contracts. I think it's more a matter of a kind of concentration of resources into applications. Like if um, we're, you remember um, when I think it was a couple like a year or two ago, some major exchange got hacked, and there was some noise on Twitter about. I think it was either CZ or someone else cons like considering organizing some mining pools to do a fifty-one percent attack to recover those funds. Right, basically arguing that you know it would like you would get more money back from the fifty-one percent attack that, um, and you could potentially use you know some of that to compensate whoever the fifty-one percent attack harmed and. Like it would be a kind of net better for everyone, and that ended up, of course, not happening. But like, well, that was a thought. That was more of a thought experiment because I discussed that with Adam Back and Brian Bishop, and we went into the detail, and it was virtually, mm. it was a very, like, very difficult thing to do in the time required. I think that was more of a thought experiment. Right. That's fair, but um, I would say. Like the thing that you have to understand about the DAO, right? Kind of going back to it a bit, is that the DAO is a very special set of cir coincidental circumstances that may well never happen again, right? Like because what happened in the DAO was there was a hack. That hack involved a lot of money, and the hack w just happens to be a hack in such a way that the money was frozen solid in one address for thirty-five days before it could be moved again. Like those are a very kind of perfect storm set of conditions that that uh, kind of make a uh, uh, something like the DAO fork both uh, actually kind of attractive and feasible to implement, right? Like if the hacker had gotten those coins out immediately, the DAO fork probably would not have happened, right? Because we would have thought that you know reverting multiple days of history would have been an unacceptable uh, violation of uh, you know the chain's uh, immutability, and uh, doing a uh, fifty-one percent attack to reverse the Mt. Gox uh, theft, for example, was uh, not viable for that reason. It was was also not viable because well no one really knew where the theft came from uh, so like you do have to kind of take into account that very uh, kind of unique set of circumstances that made that situation even possible um so i mean i think in in the like in the long term i definitely expect uh, kind of you know pressures um to uh, kind of intervene as a result of uh, attacks to continue existing, though I do think that and if the social contract against uh, doing that sort of thing is uh, growing stronger and stronger by the year.
Um, great. Now I even forgot uh, forgot what the other points that you raised were. I've I've forgotten as well. Okay, try a couple of different interesting questions. Samson, do you think Bitcoiners have any blind spots, and then there are any fair criticisms that come from the Ethereum community about Bitcoin? I think you could criticize uh, and say that Bitcoin is bad at moving fast and breaking things, but I don't think that's for a, a lack of people trying. I think it's just the way it works. People can't move fast and break things on Bitcoin, and most of the developers don't. I you think that's all- a re- I think that that sounds like a reverse criticism of Ethereum. <laughs> well, I, I, if you think I'm- about it. No, I'm actually like, so for example, let me think of a, I think of a a fair criticism of Bitcoin, perhaps that we we can be very critical perhaps of ETH2. A lot of people say it's taken a long time. I think you could possibly label the same criticism at Lightning. Lightning's taken taken quite a long time. That's that's one I would put out there. Do, do you, yeah, you you could say that. I, you could always say like things take a long time. Like at Blockstream, we've been working on simplicity, simplicity, and that's taken a long time too. But the the plan is to make it work right the first time, uh, because it is supposed to be a foundational layer. Bitcoin is supposed to be the foundation of mm-hmm. a, a new world order in finance, and you can't have things that break all the time. It's just the ethos of Bitcoin development, which is you know build it right the first time. And that means things take time. Uh, Lightning is actually quite fast, I, I would say. We started having you know, public stores in uh, 2018, and it's grown a lot since then. Vitalik, what about Ethereum? Do, do you think there's any solid and well-founded criticisms of Ethereum which come from Bitcoiners? Um, I mean, I think uh, there's definitely a uh, like a subset of people in the in the Ethereum community that are kind of not careful enough about a lot of things. I mean, DeFi is one example. I would definitely push back against this idea that, say, you know, the Ethereum leadership has been kind of actively um, pushing uh, pushing that forward. So. You know, even the projects that I advised at the very beginning, you know, there are things like Augur, you know, like Prediction Market. But since then, like I, uh, in 2017, you know, like I was the one who kind of publicly called out and said, you know, hey, we're at half a trillion dollars and, uh, you know, do we actually deserve it? And it turns out that as the market proved over the next one and a half years, you know, no, we didn't deserve it. Um, and there's been a lot of this uh, kind of DeFi craziness that I've been uh, trying my best to uh, uh, to push back against. And you know that. So have you really? Have you really? I've, I hmm. don't think I've really seen enough of that from you. In fairness, look, I've, I've been fair with Samson. I've hmm. pushed back on him. I, I don't feel like I've seen a lot from you. And I think yes, you talk about Augur hmm. prediction markets seemed kind of interesting. I think the bigger criticism was the OMG uh, advisory role you hmm. did. I still don't know what the hell OMG did. Uh, I'll say um, one nice thing about an Ethereum person. So Vlad Zamfir, he's actually said it a few times that we should be careful and hmm. cautious and not you know make people lose money. Actually, so I'll give him credit for that. But I don't see Vitalik saying that. Uh, so one, yeah, I don't feel like one you have very that concrete much. example. I think the recent interview I gave on Bankless, um, I uh, they asked some questions about my concerns about yield farming, and I talked for like fifteen minutes about my concerns about yield farming. They asked for uh, criticisms of uh, Ethereum culture, and I gave some criticisms of Ethereum culture. So I definitely recommend listening to that Bankless interview. I mean, it's not the one from yesterday; it's the one that's like kind of an hour and a half long from I think about a month before. Uh, so it has happened. 
So, mm. so, so back to the question, like mm. fair criticisms mm. of Ethereum from, say, the Bitcoin side. Mm-hmm. You talked about developers being maybe a little bit reckless. Anything else? So uh, culture. Um, so the, this is a, a kind of the point that I made on the Bankless podcast um, about a month ago. Basically, I think one of the great strengths that Bitcoin has is it presents itself as this kind of holistic philosophy that combines together, you know, ideas about uh, kind of the world and, and uh, kind of economics and politics and finance together with a clear picture of, uh, you know, what Bitcoin, the blockchain and, and BTC, the asset are going to do about it. You know, we have these ideas around uh, Austrian economics, uh, concerns about money printing, concerns about governments uh, having power over money, concerns about governments having uh, power over the payments layer. And, you know, here is Bitcoin, this, uh, you know, base asset and uh, payment system that uh, is not vulnerable to control by governments in the same way. And if you look at Ethereum, on the other hand, like it definitely doesn't have that same uh, kind of unified narrative. And now there is aspects of this that are strength. Um, you know, have like, ideological diversity definitely has value, but. At the same time, it does uh, kind of create a community that uh, um, that sometimes has a bit more of a kind of not knowing what it stands for um, at, at certain times. And that's something that you know, I think a lot of people are definitely kind of trying to um, uh, to move past and uh, kind of get, uh, get a clearer picture for. But it's definitely not a, uh, a journey that we're kind of anywhere clo- uh, close to fully figuring out yet. Do you think it's a problem there? Is it's trying to be too many things? Like, mm. like Bitcoin is really Bitcoin's yeah. pretty simple, right? Right. It is the ability to transfer value. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's you know, and there's a number of different things you can do, and you know, you can time lock or you can multi sig, but really, it's just about storing and sending value. But it seems like Ethereum is trying to do so many things. It's trying to be so many things, so many people that that causes a lot of. Like for me as a non-technical person, it seems to cause a lot of problems down the lines because it's a very complex system. It's very difficult to keep it decentralized. It, right. I've and and this decentralizing, I'm just going to throw in there mm. is the way I've kind of got my head around it. It feels like Bitcoiners are always trying directionally to be to maintain or become more decentralized, mm-hmm. and it feels like Ethereum compromises decentralization mm. and actually directionally is becoming more centralized because of the volume of things it's trying to do interesting well, if i were to say if i were to say what uh, the ideology of ethereum is it's let's try everything and see what sticks mm. that's the mm-hmm. impression that i get right I think that's fair. Like, I mean, I think there are definitely common ideological points, like, you know, the idea that, like, we don't want to have a world that has these uh, kind of political and institutional choke points that uh, kind of limit people's ability to interact and cooperate with each other. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin tries to kind of mitigate that in the financial sphere. Ethereum tries to mitigate that both in the money sphere and also in uh, kind of a lot of these uh, other spheres where people are building uh, kind of applications in, you know, this is this idea of kind of social scalability, you know, cooperating across trust boundaries and these things. But once you get into the specifics, there's definitely a bigger element of uh, let's try everything. Um, another way of describing this, uh, this is a quote that I gave like a few years ago, like Bitcoin people think Bitcoin is 80% complete. Ethereum people think Ethereum is 40% complete. Um, and I think right now, maybe it's not 40%, maybe it's around 60%. But in general, like there definitely is a broader acceptance in the Ethereum community that there are a kind of steps in the journey that haven't been taken yet. 
you know, solidifying on you know a set of a uh, a set of applications is one of those steps. Although there's been a lot of progress toward that. Um, ETH two proof of stake and sharding, uh, layer two scaling, both of those are kind of steps uh, to, toward that. Uh, so. And I think I do you know I can, I can add something in there, Vitalik. Mm. So I, I mentioned this on Twitter the other day. It's because every time I hear when somebody says about Bitcoin, oh, if Bitcoin succeeds, and I don't use that lang- language anymore. I think it has succeeded. Mm-hmm. I think it is it's an alpha project mm-hmm. now. It's uh, that people are just building on blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. I but I still consider Ethereum an experiment, and the reason I do is the amount of times I see some kind of error or some kind of hack or mm-hmm. money lost or a what happened? I just see it as like still very much almost like a science project. Whereas I think Bitcoin has now delivered. It's very trustworthy. Do you therefore do you do you have a, do you have any personal kind of like envy towards a kind of very solid f- mm-hmm. philosophy or shared philosophy of Bitcoiners? And and, and I'm not throwing a lot in here. Do you also therefore feel a lot of responsibility for that? And maybe you know. Maybe the fact that everyone looks to you that leaves a lot of responsibility on your in your hands. Yeah, and I think so. Like probably all three of us can agree that uh, kind of Ethereum both is and sees itself as a project that's uh, significantly earlier along its journey to kind of reaching its final form. Um, well, I'll just throw something in there. I think some people coming in and buying Ethereum won't know the difference between that and Bitcoin. I think you but have you, to be embedded in the community to have that feeling. Vitalik, hmm. you just said it's 60% complete. Right. But you just contradicted yourself here. And, and the fact that you're moving from ETH 1.0 to ETH 2.0, mm-hmm. wait, wait, shouldn't that mean that you're less than 50%? Should, should, hold on. Should, let, Samson, we'll come back to that. Can we just can we stick to just my questions? I don't want them to be lost. And then, Samson, I'll come back to you. So do you have that envy of the kind of like mm-hmm. shared, firm, quite simple right. ideology of Bitcoin? And do you feel... A, like a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. to try and guide and create that for Ethereum, or are you happy for Ethereum to just be this big open thing? I, I definitely, uh, I definitely personally want Ethereum to kind of solidify over time, and I've definitely kind of said those kinds of things, right? And if you even look at the Ethereum two two roadmap, there is a kind of path towards solidifying on a kind of one specific final form, both uh, kind of economically and uh, technologically. Um, and I think there's definitely a lot of people in the Ethereum community and uh, including the core dev community that agree with uh, that direction. I mean, there's definitely also people who think that if the kind of Ethereum, the base layer should be agile forever. But like my impression is definitely that uh, kind of the desire to move toward uh, some kind of ossification is, uh, is definitely something that's uh, strong. And, you know, do I feel a kind of responsibility to kind of do what I can to make sure that that transition happens uh, kind of smoothly? I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely. Thank you, Samson. Sorry, you you had a question then and I stopped you before. I was just commenting that uh, Ethereum is not 60% just because you're moving from version 1 to version 2, which is not even out there yet. So by definition, mm-hmm. it should be less than 50. Well, I mean, but but version 2 is already like a, a, a very large parts of it are complete, right? Like we have the Madasha test that we have the phase 1 spec. Or, I mean, we have you know, like implementations of the yeah, merge process and so forth. So what happens to the miners when you guys shift over to 2.0? Do they just go bankrupt or they move they, to 
switch to mining Zach, switch to mining Filecoin, switch to being a zero-knowledge proof mining nodes for uh, ZK rollups, um, or potentially they sell their computers back to gamers and gamers can finally be happy. And then what about the people holding ETH right now? What, is there a new currency? Is it going to be ETH2? Uh, no, and I think ETH, ETH is ETH. You know, there's uh, like every, like basically the way the merge process is going to work is that the uh, ETH2 state, kind of all of the uh, ETH2, or sorry, the ETH1 state, all of the ETH1 accounts and contracts, so they're going to be uh, kind of transplanted into the ETH2 system. And so there's going to just continue to be one asset. Can, so, can, Vitalik, can, can Ethereum fail? Um, absolutely. And, and of course, and I think Bitcoin can fail too. Um, so, okay, so what? I'll, I'll put both on you. How does Bitcoin fail? Like what, what would be catastrophic for Bitcoin? And, and similar for Ethereum, how does Ethereum fail? And it, does it become a scenario where you yourself have to actually look at it and go, okay, I think, I don't think this works. Like what is, I don't understand what success is. For Ethereum. So for Bitcoin, I know doing what it does now is its success. If it just gets stronger and tougher and more secure, it just becomes a better version of what it is now. But it is success for me already. Is Ethereum successful now or is it heading towards a successful state? I'm sorry, uh, there's a broad range of questions there for you. I think uh, I definitely feel like Ethereum is heading towards success. Uh, so one kind of metric of success that I think is good to think about is uh, like, are you seeing people actually use the thing in contexts outside of the community, which is already in, uh, enthusiastic about it because it, it is the community of that thing, right? So like in Bitcoin, for example, you know, I know there's a bunch of people in places like you know Venezuela and Palestine and you know and so and Africa and so forth that like actually just use and derive value from uh, being like say you know they want to work remotely and get uh, kind of you know Western level wages and uh, kind of get that money back to their uh, uh, to their families which I think is great and like I know there's people using ETH for that sort of thing as well uh, kind of, though on a bit of a smaller scale um, and I I've Actually, even this year started to see more examples of uh, this. So, like for example, you know, a few months ago, I was uh, browsing the uh, Slate Store Codex subreddit. This is this you know rationalist community on the internet, and I saw one of them just kind of casually mention or and even include a link to a prediction market on Omen. Right, so you know just like randomly out there in the wild, people are starting to kind of get excited about say Ethereum prediction markets. So, like to me, success is definitely a kind of taking those uh, kind of early successes and kind of scaling them out you know, like basically getting to the point where you have large numbers of users who do not see themselves as uh, kind of you know quote ethereans as any kind of identity but just you know using ethereum applications because they find them useful and like i definitely freely admit that ethereum is at an earlier stage than uh, bitcoin in terms of uh, reaching a lot of those aspirations and you know especially out kind of outside of the uh, kind of blockchain as cryptocurrency and uh, sphere and in the and blockchain as application sphere but you know it, it definitely feels to me to be moving in the right direction I think people listen to this some people are probably more on the ethereum side may feel like uh, I'm focusing a lot more of the questions at Ethereum. I think the reason being is I, I think there are more questions around Ethereum. Um, but I, I will try and flip it back to Bitcoin sometimes. Um, and Samson, do you, where do you see cat catastrophic failures that can happen for Bitcoin? And what worries you about Bitcoin? 
I think uh, I don't really worry much about catastrophic failures. I, I think we have a very robust uh, group of developers working on it, scrutinizing the code, uh, making sure nothing uh, is vulnerable to an attack or is broken. Um, in terms of being able to run a node, uh, anybody in the world can run a Bitcoin node. So it's not uh, an attack vector where a nation state can shut down the network. And we even have Blockstream satellites that rebroadcast the chain and you can sync from zero. So you can place a node in the middle of the desert with no internet and sync up and transact. I don't see the same for Ethereum. I think uh, Infira is a large part of the source of truth for what uh, Ethereum actually is, what the state is. And if someone were to shut down Infira, that would be catastrophic for Ethereum. It's very difficult to run an Ethereum node. I, I'm from the exchange space. I have a lot of friends still running exchanges, and they're always complaining about how difficult it is to keep their Ethereum node in sync. It's like a, it's like a mission critical thing that's always at risk of failure. Okay, so we'll come back to that. We'll come back to node. So Vitalik, is Samsung right about? having nothing really to fear catastrophically about Bitcoin or is anything that you look at and you think maybe we have blind spots? Um, so the things that I tend to worry about, I mean, one is that there's always this kind of black swan risk of technical failure. You know, what if the NSA comes out with a quantum computer out of the blue and, and uh, just steals a whole bunch of coins before he can do anything about it? Um, political failure. Uh, so... Like, what if uh, governments all, uh, you know, banned Bitco uh, Bitcoin and then uh, kind of commandeer the mining pools, use that to just uh, do what I call like, a 51% spawn camping attack and just keep attacking the chain over and over again until it becomes um, non-viable. And meanwhile, the prices are low because like the thing's banned and uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a crisis of confidence. Um, there's also a chuck. You, you, you have a quantum computer, right? Would you use it to attack Bitcoin? Mm, Come on, no. Samson. We don't, we don't need to do that now. Come on. All right. So I know what you're doing there. Come on. Let's be fair. Um, so but Vitalik, so what it seems like to me there, the things you've explained, the potential black swan risks to Bitcoin are the risks that exist to both. Mm -hmm. But are there any unique risks you think Bitcoin has that Ethereum doesn't? Um, I think the main one is just that uh, kind of Bitcoin doesn't have a kind of what I call like functionality escape velocity. So basically kind of sufficient functionality to serve as a uh, kind of trustless base layer for um, a lot of different um, applications. And as a result of this, like, like there's the possibility that people will just uh, over time find Bitcoin less and less interesting and other platforms more interesting. Okay. Okay. So I don't buy that last one, but but I, the other two I, I certainly think exist. But I think they exist for both. I don't buy the last one because I think, you know, I did. Um, I've got my two hundred fiftieth episode coming out tomorrow, and I asked a bunch of previous guests to do to, to a little minute on Bitcoin. And one of the one of the people who left a comment was Jeremy Welch. He said one of the best things about Bitcoin is it's boring. And the reason that's great, because it has to do one job, pretty much, and do it really well. So I don't buy that last one. I understand what you're saying. I think that's more of a developer thing. Perhaps developers will find it more interesting. I don't need my money to be interesting. I need it to be safe. Well, so there, you see what I mean? there are concrete consequences to a kind of Bitcoin not having functionality escape velocity, right? So like one example of this is that the Ethereum chain can trustlessly verify the Bitcoin chain, but the Bitcoin chain cannot trustlessly verify the Ethereum chain. Right, so like there exists this uh, smart contract called uh, uh, BTC Relay. Why does it need to? 
Um, well, who can I verify the Ethereum chain? Well, okay, so we'll come so back to basically, that. But why does it need to? Um, uh, so just uh, there exists a smart contract called uh, BTC Relay, right? That exists on Ethereum, and it's basically like a Bitcoin light collider. Like it just verifies Bitcoin block headers. And Bitcoin doesn't have the ability to do the same to Ethereum because Bitcoin doesn't have this kind of property that I call rich statefulness, this ability to have kind of computer programs with memory. Now, in terms of what that gives you, um, I think. Like one of the main things just is the ability to create trustless bridges, right? So like if Bitcoin and Ethereum both um, had the ability to verify each other, that you actually could create these uh, kind of wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum tokens in such a way that these wrappers did not have to depend on a central party to run the multisig. And instead, the wrappers would be kind of secure as long as the blockchains are secure. But now, you know, all of these different wrappers, they all have, a, you know, whether it's Liquid or whether it's uh, kind of WBTC or any of these other BTCs on Ethereum, like they have these centralized operators and potentially those operators are you no know, sing, uh, single points of failure. And if they really wanted to or they got coerced into uh, stealing those coins, they could steal those coins. Uh, and, and I think that uh, kind of really puts a kind of dampener on uh, people's uh, kind of ability and willingness to uh, really use these schemes and trust them. That's freedom, man. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> okay, so let's go. Let's go to the node thing. So Vitalik, just say like after this, I'm like, you know what? Vitalik had a point. I'm gonna get myself some Ethereum, and I'm 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 really like known and respected for my knowledge with Bitcoin nodes and having set up quite a few of them. Um, w- w- if I wanted to set up an Ethereum node here in my office. Would I realistically would I be able to do it? Um, yeah, you can. I mean, I've uh, sunk a yeah, Nethermind note on my laptop uh, quite a few times. Hold on, but you're Vitalik Buterin, like you're like the guy who created Ethereum. I'm on about me. I'm a technical moron. Can yeah, I yeah, really? Yeah, you can. I mean, the the install instructions are very simple, and as far as I can tell, they're not really more complicated than for like Bitcoin D or something like that. Like you know, you go to a website, you install the thing, and like you uh, you run the thing. How long does it take to sync? I think uh, a Nevermind uh, at a fast sake is somewhere around 12 hours. Right. Well, I'm going to have a go. I'm going to have a go this week, and I'm going to tell you how I how I got on. Yeah. But so, uh, but I so this followed- is an example. This is an example of dishonest marketing from the okay. Ethereum folks. Okay. That is not a full node by um, the definition. It's the changing the terminology. So you've called a full node. You've renamed it into an archival node, but. For a Bitcoiner, that is a full node. You have to have the complete state. Well, and to sync that would require four terabytes of memory um, of space, and you would need to sync for about a month. Okay, hold on. So a full node um, contains all of the information that's needed to uh, recover any of the information that's in an archive node, right? Uh, so, you know, if you have a full node, that means you have the current state, you have the full history, whereas an archive node also has this additional information, which is basically a kind of quick index into all of the historical states. And that's just information that almost all users don't really need, right? And in fact, like, I think Bitcoin itself does like pruning, right? Like it, like Bitcoin D does history pruning, so it forgets uh, like old history or, or at least has a mode for that. Uh, so yeah, but the equivalent of a prune node is your fast sync. Right. So technically, you shouldn't even fast sync your node when you set it up, Peter. 
So what's the difference? What are you actually saying here, Samson? What what is Vitalik explaining here? This first from the node. How is I'm just different? saying the they're they're putting different terminologies on things to kind of soften the blow of changing it to a more trusted model. Mm. Uh, when you're thinking an Ethereum node, you're trusting the system largely. Uh, only a few people in the world actually have a an Ethereum full node by definition of a, mm. a Bitcoiner. Which is probably inferior people, and maybe maybe the Ethereum Foundation. But the fact that in during Supplygate, no one was able to actually, you know, we're run we're the come, we're, we're, we're coming to Supplygate. Okay, okay so okay. Vitalik, Vitalik, yeah. re- realistically and honestly, how many Ethereum full archive full nodes are there? And so, first of all, I reject fully the characterization that uh, FastSync nodes okay. are not full nodes. They uh, they provide like exactly the same functionality. You know, they're verifying all of the new blocks that are coming in. They let you access uh, and of the current state, they let you access to history. Um, Did you see the article from Data Veteran, which is an attack vector on FastSync? So, if there was a coordinated attack on the network for that two week period of fast syncing, wait, can wait, so, so that requires a fifty one percent attack that's two weeks long, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, like, if there's a 51% attack that's two weeks long, then realistically, I think in Bitcoin or Ethereum, like, people would just need to install, like, some kind of, you know, user activated soft fork or whatever that bans the attack, right? Because, like, there's no way that or people are actually. Exactly. Like, there's no way that people are actually going to accept a yeah, two week long attack chain. Yeah, I, I that sounds fair. I'm going to ask Eric Wall about this. Because he he will give me the I think he will give me the honest answer and I'll check with Udi because I I can't figure out the truth between the two of them. Okay, let's talk about Supply Gate. Okay, hmm. so as far as I saw it, mm-hmm. as far as I see it, Vitalik, it's very very easy with a Bitcoin node mm-hmm. to see the supply of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Very very easy to, mm-hmm. and it it never changes. Like right. everybody sees the same the same supply. It seems that because Ethereum is a little bit more complicated, Mm -hmm. the ability to go and see the full supply is very difficult. It seems to be that there's like this range that it falls within. I think is that true? I mean, I think theoretically it's completely possible for um, and not that hard to add into nodes the uh, functionality of uh, keeping track of the total supply, right? Because all that you would do is you would just uh, kind of figure out what the total sum of all of the balances in the state tree, and then whenever there is an update, like whenever you get a new block, you would just see what all the new balances are, and you would kind of subtract and add, um, and like you would be able to do it, right? Like. There isn't anything kind of fundamental to Ethereum that makes it not possible to uh, keep track of the Ethereum total supply. Like the thing that's different is basically that people in the Ethereum community just like haven't bothered to write that convenience function into the um, into the code yet, and and that's something that ha- that is changing over the last few days, obviously. Mm. Would you say is that fair, Samson? Are we are we like over exaggerating the point on this supply thing because it's a chance to just kind of throw a punch at Ethereum, or is this a valid, very concerning thing? I think it's a valid, concerning thing, depending on what you think Ethereum is. If it's just a utility token um, that doesn't need to have value, and you just use it to run your smart contracts or your DeFi apps or whatever, then, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just crank it out, uh, inflate the supply if you want. But if you want to treat Ethereum as money, then you need to be able to validate, and everyone has to be able to run a full archival node and run that script against it, or even better, have it built into uh, the client so that you can automatically see the supply. Because 
the whole point of having uh, a cryptocurrency is that you have an auditable supply, and most cryptocurrencies get that off the off the bat. Like you know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero, you can easily audit the supply of them at any given point, and anybody can do that. That does seem fair to me, Vitalik. It does seem that that is a bit of a limitation and a bit of a flaw with Ethereum. Well, like that, that, me as a as an external person, I, that that is kind of off-putting to me right but like the important thing right is that this is not a fundamental issue with ethereum this is just like something that ethereum clients have not yet bothered to implement and um, you know can implement uh, quite easily if they want to okay so is, do you think that's something that will is that happening then um so like i know nethermind already has written the scripts i mean peter Solaji from geth has um, impl- um implemented a script uh so and i think the question is just like how easy they'll uh, um, how easy they'll make it, I and mean, I'm not sure. I and mean, I'm sure if like people really demand it, they'll just add it in as a um, as a convenience function. But I mean, I think like the other point here though is that like th- this definitely is being a kind of blown up on Twitter as though you know, oh my God, we don't know the Ethereum supply. Kind of as though there's some possibility that someone somehow kind of snuck 25 million coins into the protocol. And I think like it's important to clarify that that's not true at all, right? Like because you know, like first of all, people know what the Ethereum supply is to like within a yeah, fairly small uh, um, to within a fairly small range. Like the supply is about one hundred and twelve point one million, right? And that's uh, kind of the result that all. Well, these- what's the range? What's the range? Um, I like, think- are we talking about like less than one percent? Less than Absolutely. it's less than zero point one percent. I think. Right. Uh, yeah. So but you don't you don't know. I mean, well, part of the reason, it, like, I can't just like give a number down to the last digit is because Ethereum just gives it, it cu- uh, pushes out a new block every fourteen seconds, and so it just keeps changing. Um, I mean, I could obvious we could always just like run those scripts again, but the last time the scripts were run were a couple of days ago, and like every day it's like about thirteen thousand new ether gets issued. So like, you do have to be uh, kind of realistic about, um, you know, like how many dig- digits of precision you can expect. But mm, like, if. Uh, mm. Do you, do you know what it sounds like to me? This sounds like to me, it's like, I understand why the Bitcoiners are concerned about this because mm-hmm. it's so important to them to be able to verify right. the supply. It's so important that they it can be accurate about this. But it sounds to me like this is just like another one of those Ethereum things where it's just it's just not as good as Bitcoin because it's just trying to do too many things. It's trying to be, it's trying to have quick blocks. It's trying to do so many things. This is just... It's like um, it's like Ethereum is just a little bit raggedy around the edges. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I, I can see that, and I think um, like Ethereum nodes definitely have a kind of more protocol rules to validate. Like you know, aside from auditing the supply, like you know, you can audit whether or not each individual contract was hacked, whether or not each individual like ECDSA signature is valid, and so on and so forth. And like the fact is that the clients are auditing all of those rules. And, and and there definitely is some complexity to those rules, but and uh, like realistically, it's a combination of like one. There definitely being like more rules altogether, like more kind of moving parts of uh, of Ethereum that people care about, and also just like there's definitely like the thing I'll admit is that there's less of this uh, kind of. A kind of ideological emphasis on the supply in particular. So the other aspect of this is that Ethereum people don't really care about, you know, the lack of a, a kind of magic number equivalent to uh, 21 million. And, you know, Sam, Samson, if, if we don't like Ethereum mm-hmm. and we don't want to use it and we don't, why should we care if they don't care about the supply? It doesn't affect us. 
Okay, so I think it's more about Bitcoiners wanting to help provide that disclaimer uh, to people. It's not that they really care deep down about the survival of Ethereum. They're just trying to provide that disclaimer to the world that you know this thing does not purport to do what it says it does. And it's not even about knowing an exact num magic number, quote unquote, like 21 million. It's about knowing the number. What is your number of well, your supply? Yeah. And I think you made some excuses there about, you know, well, we moved on, you we calculated calculated it for an older block. But what if you set a block in the future in, uh, let's say, two weeks time? Can you guys all run a script for that block in the future and spit out the output? And will we see a consensus of the actual supply? Bitcoiners have said that they're happy to do that. And I think some of them are organizing. Uh, Nanya Business is putting together a group to do exactly that. Well, like instead of like block numbers, like let's say like talk about timestamps, right? Like, for example, like what it, what is going to be the future timestamp, uh, the future amount of Bitcoin at uh, say a new year, exactly the end of this year, uh, say San Francisco time, right? Like that's something that does have a bit of uncertainty because uh, Bitcoin has a bit of uncertainty in its block time, and Ethereum also has. Oh, a bit hold of on, we don't we don't care about. But no, that's why we're block saying number. block time. Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I say, like, I, I am technically incompetent, but I, I know if you know the block, you should know the supply on. Right, but block. why do we care about the block number? Right, like, block, like that's a bit of an arbitrary choice. Like, shouldn't we care about the time? Because, it, no, because like, if you know the block and you know the the supply on that block, then you can verify there's been no inflation, right? Yeah. Like right. Even I get that. So in I'm, Ethereum, the statistic would be that like if you know the block number plus the number of uh, plus the number of uncles and a couple of other statistics about those uncles, then you um, then you know what the supply uh, uh, what the supply is, right? So what are the uncles? Sorry, what are the uncles? What about the ants? Uh, so the uncles basically this is the idea that like if a block doesn't make it into the ethereum chain uh, that block um, also can be kind of re-included to the chain later and it still gets most of the reward that it otherwise would have gotten um, the uncle mechanism was basically included as a kind of anti-centralization measure like basically trying to reduce the advantage that like extremely well connected mining pools have over other mining pools and the existence of these uncle rewards is the thing that uh, kind of makes the formula for ETH issuance a bit more complicated than, um, you know, just a function of the block number. Okay. So what so if hold, you, uh, hold on. Hold on. Sorry, supply... sorry, Samsung. Just give me a second. So I'm just trying to understand. Okay. Every time a Bitcoin block gets added, I know, you know, it was you know, a few months ago when we started, it was 50 Bitcoins, then it was 25, then it's 12. I, I know that, right? But... There are Ethereum blocks that don't get added, but that, but the supply still exists. Are you saying? Right. Basically, if an Ethereum block does not become added directly into the chain, the block's header can still be included into the chain a bit later, and that block still gets most of its reward. Okay. This is the kind of thing I should know, but I just don't know. I know Bitcoin will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Ethereum, does it have a fixed number or does it have an ongoing inflation? I think it, it has, has ongoing inflation, does it? It has ongoing inflation. I mean, there, you can definitely uh, provide a number which has a cap on the uh, amount of inflation that's going to happen per year. I think it's like about 5 million currently with the proof of work chain, and it's going to be a, a, a bit less than 2 million when we switch to proof of stake. And, and so you're basically saying with the Ethereum blockchain and knowing the uncles, if we had a certain timestamp, you would be able to get a, uh, a confirmed agree supply and everybody could agree on that supply from their well, node. Everyone could agree on some future supply if they agree on some future hypothetical scenario involving how many blocks and how many uncles are produced. 
Whereas with Bitcoin, like everyone can agree on the supply if they uh, or on a future supply if they agree on how many blocks will be produced in the future. See, this is where this stuff's mad, right? You've got to think like I always consider myself a creative, not a not a technical person. So there's a lot to understand here, and new people coming in, there's like there's a lot of complexity behind this stuff, which is really hard to get your head around. Okay, let me ask you about Infura. Oh wait, wait, wait. This is why Ethereum. This is how Ethereum thrives. They make things overly complex so that there is no absolute truth. It's uh, you know complicated. You have to calculate this and that and the aunt and the nephew and the, the cousin, and that's why we can't do it. But you know, look at the other stuff that we're doing. Are you actually yeah. saying that Ethereum's complexity is an obfuscation strategy? Because I'm pretty sure I could pretty much no Ethereum would agree with that. How many pages is your white paper? I forget, I and mean, it's definitely somewhere between five and ten thousand words. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, so I don't buy the idea that it's an obfuscation strategy. I just, I buy it as it's a mistake. I think the complexity is a mistake. I think. No, I think it's a very clever obfuscation strategy. Hmm. Hmm. Like if you actually spend, if you actually yeah. spend time in say the ETH two development communities, like you will see a lot of really hard work going into making the protocol as simple as possible. Like if you even go into the GitHub history of the ETH two spec for phase zero, you can see it slowly getting reduced from I think it was about twenty six hundred lines of code to like about sixteen hundred lines of code. Like people spent a lot of time working hard on uh, coming up with simplifications as much as they can. Yeah, and I don't the, buy it. Why does every Ethereum subsystem have its own token then? Like Raiden has its own token. Uh, I don't know. Stake pools, they have their own token too. It's just a layering complexity on top of complexity, in my view. I mean, that's just an application I don't, I, of how they design themselves. Yeah, I personally don't buy it that there are people sat there saying, let's make this really complicated so we can get away with shit. I just, I don't buy, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't. Um, I, I think have you seen the design diagram for ETH two? It's like uh... oh yeah, yeah, but I don't think they've done that on purpose. I just think the ambition is too high. I think I think one of the problems that, and I think Bitcoin has as well, but I think Ethereum people really miss is UX and just somebody who stands over the project and say, we need to simplify this. We need to make this easier to use because no one's going to understand this. I think Ethereum's biggest problem is that the blockchains themselves, even Bitcoin is complicated. I think Ethereum is too complicated to go mainstream with most of the ideas I've seen. I actually disagree with that. I think Ethereum is very good at UI. They abstract a lot of things to their retail target so that they just open a page in a web browser, but at the sacrifice of decentralization and censorship resistance. Mm. So instead of saying run a full node, it's like, you know, connect to this website, which connects to Infira. But uh, when they market the thing, they make it very complex. I think those diagrams are emblematic of their efforts to stay complex. I don't know. I don't buy it. But Vitaly, let me ask you about this Infura thing. Let's, let's be honest about it. Like, how reliant is Ethereum on Infura? So I think, first of all, the Ethereum network is not reliant on Infura. Like if, if, if Infura died tomorrow, you know, the Ethereum network would uh, keep going and everyone who does have either an Ethereum full node or an Ethereum light node um, would still continue a kind of functioning normally. Ethereum applications would definitely get significantly harder to use. Though at the same time, like it is possible to use um, Ethereum applications without relying on Infura, right? Like I think in MetaMask, it's possible to uh, kind of switch 
reach the endpoint to a local node. Um, and there is such a thing as an Ethereum light client, like you can run Geth Lite, and uh, some of the other implementations have light modes too, which also do the same kind of uh, you know block header verification that Bitcoin does. And actually, like in Ethereum, we even tried really hard to make light clients more powerful. So, like for example, Ethereum has this concept called a state tree, where instead of just committing to transactions, we commit to account balances. And so given a block, okay, given the header of a block, given this kind of small piece of data uh, that's at the, at the top of a block, you can create a very short proof that cryptographically proves that, you know, what is the balance of uh, a particular account, right? And these are definitely things that we can try to do better. And there's very active efforts at uh, trying to do better at this. Like there's a, a lot of ongoing efforts at, you know, trying to create a, a more decentralized uh, backend for you know, something like MetaMask, for example. But like, if you want to, you could definitely hook it up to kind of your, 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 your full node or even your light node. I have a friend that runs a crypto exchange. And he said, if Inferior gets hacked, Ethereum is dead. Because that's the source of truth for everybody. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I, yeah, I've definitely sent um, a lot you of should uh, know that. payments uh, out of uh, my another mines node. So, so do you have a full archival node? I do not have an archival node. I have a full another mine node. That sound. This sounds to me like you. You haven't really convinced me on this one, Vitalik. But it's so complicated, it, it, it kind of goes a bit over my head. So I'm going to move on from that because I'm conscious we've done nearly an hour and a half, and I think that's very healthy. Let's, let's, let's talk about what the right price of a transaction is. Well, so hmm, I think there can be some hypocrisy here. And hmm. okay, so I think Bitcoiners accept higher transactions a little bit more within uh, the Bitcoin blockchain because of um, what it is we're doing with Bitcoin. Whereas, like, uh, like the Ethereum, you did like you did say that time, Vitalik, that you want to keep it under five cents. We've seen mm -hmm. saying forty dollars, but I just see the reality of both blockchains have a, a supply and demand thing going on, and I think this has got to a place where you, it, it I, I guess if the the usage of the Ethereum blockchain uh, filled up quicker than you expected, I've explained that really badly. I know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's Does definitely that true. Like, and when I made that comment about how kind of the internet of money should not cost five cents a transaction, like that was definitely a uh, kind of a comment about the whole space, right? And it was definitely intended in uh, kind of a large part also as a comment on, you know, what Ethereum is uh, uh, kind of is doing and the fact that Ethereum needs to uh, focus on its own scaling challenges as well. And I mean, I, Ethereum actually kind of has accomplished this. Uh, so like, for example, if you look at Loopring, right, or ZK Sync, these are the two uh, ZK rollups, uh, the kind of the layer twos that already exist uh, on the Ethereum mainnet, the amount of uh, money that it, co uh, that it costs or the, kind of the transaction fee that it costs uh, to send something inside one of them is even now on the order of like something like one to one to three cents, right? So... Like it is definitely like scalability is something that we deeply care about, and uh, like the way that I sometimes think about like talk about it is uh, Bitcoin people definitely do care more about improving the accessibility of reading the chain, whereas Ethereum people improve the uh, care about improving the accessibility of you know not just reading to the chain but also writing to the chain. And kind of how both are important, and that's why kind of some of our you know we're doing some of the scalability things um, uh, that we're doing, but I mean. There definitely has been a lot of progress, and, and I know even on the Bitcoin side, you know, there's been progress. So with the uh, the Lightning Network on uh, pushing uh, kind of transaction fees that users experience down. 
Yeah, it's, right, it's but you're comparing same. apples to it's you're comparing apples to oranges, though. Uh, Loopring and what was the other thing you said? Those are like off-chain solutions. So you're comparing that to mm. that's basically like a Lightning network or a Liquid network. But when you say five cents, are do you mean on-chain on the Ethereum main chain? It should be five cents. My original quote said the Internet of Money should not cost more than five cents a transaction, and the Internet of Money clearly refers to kind of this abstract concept of being able to send uh, payments in a decentralized way. Like I don't think it refers to the base layer. Um, right, but what's wrong with the free market determining the price of a transaction? Why does it need to be set? Um, I'm not, have you heard I'm of not the saying the price of a transaction like to be set. <laughs> I'm but you're saying it shouldn't cost it's like, much. Like I think saying that something should have, like saying that you want you want a particular outcome is not an attempt to control the free market, right? Like if you say, you know, I think humanity should go to Mars, that's not an attempt to like coerce the free market into, um, into going to Mars when the market doesn't want to go to Mars. It's just like, it's part of the market. Right, but that is very anti-free market saying yeah. it should not cost that much. That's uh, hmm. Soviet type economic planning. No, so if the God, you remember the God plan, that's the... It's a central planning agency that sets the levels of production, wages, and prices of goods. Whereas I think most Bitcoiners are very free market and capitalist, which is, you know, transactions will cost what they cost. And on the other hand, hand, Bitcoin has a very preset parameter for the uh, cost of reading the chain or of the block size, right? Whereas in Ethereum, you know, you have miners and miners can kind of vote the block size up or down. And I think you can definitely well, kind of go both ways on the central planning thing. So when I saw the prices on the Ethereum blockchain uh, transaction fees, some people paying like $40 and $30 mm-hmm. and averaging like 7 yeah. And uh, I saw criticism from Bitcoiners this week. I, I kind of felt like, well, but we're free market people, right? And that, if the free market is determined that's the price of the transaction, we should just celebrate it. That's what it mm-hmm. is. The worst thing would be that it was enforced. Yes, Ethereum is meant to do something different, but really, that's just a that is just a, I guess, sign mm. of success. It depends whether you call it success, but that's a sign of success. I mean, I def like I definitely want to kind of press on this philosophical point further. Like, I mean, being pro free market is definitely not at all um, incompatible with having preferences um, about you know what outcomes the free market will lead to, right? Like, you know, people even people who are free market and a lot of the time they're free market because they think that the free market will lead to certain outcomes better than certain other systems do. And, you know, like if, uh, you know, for example, like, you know, in, uh, you know, if you have a free market in um, like food and uh, food price or even or say even in, in housing, I mean, I know the free the market in housing is not is totally not free, but like even if it was and uh, that leads to prices being high, like it's still a totally legitimate thing to express unhappiness about, uh, say, the price of housing being too high and being in favor of like, say, new technologies that will make it easier to build more housing. Right. Like. That kind of a kind of critique of outcomes and desire to uh, kind of build solutions um, that try to create better outcomes is like completely a part of the free market process. It's not a contradiction of it. But as the creator of Ethereum, when you go and say it shouldn't cost that much, do you think that's kind of an implicit promise to your customers or users that Mm -hmm. you're going to keep the cost of a transaction low so they can execute their smart contracts? That sounds to me like a desired outcome. I mean, I interpret it as a goal. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why I hear it as. Um, so you're okay with central planning to achieve that goal? Um, like, what kind of central planning are we talking about here? I don't know. Increasing the block size. 
I mean, so that's definitely not central planning. That was uh, like the the block size was increased by miners. Like it happened without my permission, like, I, as I mentioned, right? Uh, so, and if we talk about like ETH two, I mean, you can, I mean, maybe you can say the ETH two protocol was centrally planned, but then like every protocol is centrally planned at the beginning, right? That's not something that anyone has uh, uh, kind of managed to escape. Um, I mean, in the long run, like I, as I said, I'm definitely expecting the ETH two protocol to kind of solidify much more. And if we need uh, after ETH two, we need the uh, transaction fees to drop further. Then and more development of layer two protocols is a uh, which is totally a free market operation. Is uh, going to end up being a big the main part of that. But if you can hard fork all the time, it's easy just to write it off and say, well, it's centrally planned at the beginning because. There is a beginning for every hard fork, where you can't say that with Bitcoin because the beginning was uh, when Satoshi first launched the client. I mean, Bitcoin has definitely had uh, soft forks and even one hard fork since then, right? So, yeah, Bitcoin has soft forks, but that's different from a hard fork where you loosen the rule set. Well, Bitcoin has technically had one hard fork as well. It was uh, that one in 2013 that uh, removed the 5,000 database updates rule. But that's, uh, I mean, a bit of like I, I don't actually think soft forks and hard forks are that different. I mean, I think they're both changes to the rule set. Um, well, hold on, hold on. Again, this is one of the things I, I even I know, especially in Bitcoin, a hard fork is a lot more dangerous because you can create two coins. I, I know that that is that is dangerous. Because right, so a, a user activated soft fork can technically uh, do the same thing. Mm. Can it? I didn't even know this. I've learned something new today. Well, listen, look, we've done an hour and a half. I know we could go on forever. I think this has been a healthy start. We could do it again another time. Um, I, I think we've covered a lot. You, anything we didn't, didn't didn't cover, Samson, that you wish we had? We didn't talk about the mountain man thing. That uh... oh yes, come on, the mountain man. Let's close out on the mountain man. Come on, Vitalik, yeah. lay it down for us. So basically, like I think this uh, kind of goes into some of the kind of differences between the Bitcoin and the Ethereum community in terms of uh, kind of how we uh, view the concept of uh, trust. Uh, so, like I kind of interpret the Bitcoin community as having this uh, kind of very extreme and binary view of uh, trustlessness, at least sometimes, where basically say, you know, either you verify something personally, or if you don't verify something personally, then you know it is this other kind of binary category that is trusting people, and trusting people means you, you know, no longer have security. And I think the Ethereum community view is more uh, that. You know, yes, uh, minimizing trust assumptions is important, but it's a much more kind of fluid thing. And like, there are trust assumptions that are inevitable in any cryptocurrency. So, like for example, you know, most people haven't audited the code themselves, um, and so there are different uh, kind of like. One example of a different of a kind of different trust models is like what I call a kind of one of one versus n over two of n versus one of n, right? So one of one means that you know you have to trust a very specific central actor to act correctly, and if they don't act correctly, then you're screwed, right? So like in Fura, for example, one of one, uh, PayPal, one of one, um, and so on and so forth. Um, one of n basically says that there is a large set of different participants, and as long as even one of them stays honest, uh, then you're fine, right? And uh, one uh, kind of recent example of this is um, this um, discussion that was uh, kind of between me and uh, James Prestwich, where we talked about uh, kind of rollups, right? And uh, or and zk rollups specifically. 
And he made the point that he thought that ZK rollups were kind of basically the same as Infura. And the reason is that uh, like in order to run a node on a ZK rollup, you have to have a fairly big amount of computing power. And if you as a user are just a light client and you don't have that computing power, then if the system uh, kind of, if that ZK rollup stops working and if just every uh, full node of the ZK rollup disappears, then, you know, in order for you to withdraw, you have to like go and buy up that computer power and spin up your own full node, right? And my counter argument basically is that realistically, if you have a ZK rollup and you have an ecosystem and you have an ecosystem of, you know, hundreds of participants, you only need one out of those hundreds of participants to be honest in order for you to go talk to them and uh, be able to withdraw, right? So um, like the assumption that one actor out of 200 actors is going to keep on being honest, even though it technically is a trust assumption, it's a much, much weaker and much more reasonable trust assumption than the trust assumption that say Infura and specifically Infura is going to be honest. And like a lot of uh, kind of Ethereum scaling arguments, I think, like tends to implicitly rely on these uh, kind of one of n paradigms. And like I get the impression that Bitcoin people tend to uh, kind of just say, you know, dump all of that into this category that says trust. But and yeah, the Ethereum view is definitely that uh, kind of one of n and uh, one of one are these two very different things that need to be viewed very differently. Well, I have no idea what you were talking about. I tried my hardest to follow then. (laughs) But Samson, do you want to throw anything in reply to that? Well, I think he's saying it's okay to trust a group of people. And for that purpose, you could just trust the Liquid Federation. Uh, but I, I think no, no, no. Liquid Federation is no is like n out of two of n, not one of n, right? So, like the difference is, um, is your model there are two hundred people, at least one of them has to be honest, or is your model there are two hundred people and one hundred of them have to be honest? Like I'm saying, those two are very, very different. And trusting that one out of two hundred will be honest is like basically fine. But trusting that a hundred out of two hundred will be honest, well, you know, you have to think much more and you have to be really careful. Like, are what what kinds of people are those two hundred and so forth? Well, I think the key here is that Bitcoiners want to be able to run their own node. It's not about uh, being a mountain man. It's about freedom, independence, and self-sovereignty. And it's not expected that everyone in the world will run their own node. It'd be good for their own benefit. But the key is that there is an option for people that have those same values. Um, Bitcoiners have no master. It's not mountain man. It's a a free man or freeholder. That's from the Middle English period, Peter. And that's Mm -hmm. uh, someone that has uh, no master. They have their own land and they're not a serf. I think the Ethereum model is just promoting serfdom. You're a serf of Infura. You have to trust them or trust someone else that has uh, enough money to run a node. You're not your own person or your own man. So I I think that that sort of independence is critical uh, to have a more egalitarian society. What Bitcoin does is it promotes alliances to be made between equals. And you cannot be an equal if you cannot verify the supply yourself. I definitely don't think that's true. Like, I mean, I think the uh, like the model is definitely not that you know everyone is uh, kind of bows down to the god in Fura. I think the model is more like the analogy that I use is herd immunity, right? Like, you know, the fact that in the Ethereum ecosystem there are thousands of people who are running nodes means that if there is an invalid block, then that invalid like that that fact is going to get caught by one of them. And if it gets caught by one of them, then yes, you can, you personally can kind of go and verify that block. Uh, so, like the fact that there, 
like there definitely is a kind of more of this emphasis on uh, kind of relying on the existence of uh, kind of at least one person out there who is going to uh, who is going to point out flaws. But like, I mean, herd immunity is definitely not a, a kind of hierarchical and vertical concept, right? And so, I think it's fully compatible with egalitarian. So what you said is just is true. You can run a node and validate and uh, identify invalid blocks. But the problem I see is that the Ethereum people don't even do that. Just for taking yourself as an example for the supply gate stuff your retort to uh to pierre was go check coin market cap you posted a screenshot of coin market cap you didn't check your that note. was back well that was back when i wasn't even sure what his point was um and so and i was like when like here there's a bunch like my point was you know here there's a bunch of sources that tell you what this uh, that tell you what the supply is basically and and then you know like after that of course a bunch of a bunch of people ran scripts and a bunch of people were able to calculate the uh, eth supply to uh, a, a, something that's much more exact now if any one of like any of those people were dishonest like say if uh, a whole bunch of them said no this the ethereum supply is 156 million and then other people said oh no the supply is 112 million then you know, there would have been much more kind of confusion. And I think in those circumstances, a lot more people would have actually um, downloaded a node and kind of verified the code and tried to run the thing themselves, right? It's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of... Verific- like verification is not uh, by yourself does not have to be a first resort to be effective. Like if it's a second resort, then um, that's fine too. So if the range... It sounds to true. me... It's, sorry, Samson. Just, it sounds to me, the way I interpret this... Vitalik, and excuse me if you, if this is wrong, but it sounds to me that within Ethereum, I think you make compromises or you move your own goalposts because of the change in nature of Ethereum because you because you are becoming more centralized because of the demand on the system because so much happens. So I, it sounds to me like you move your own goalposts and you compromise yourself a little bit. That's what I f- it feels like is happening. I think in this you, particular case, and you post rationalize it. I mean, in this particular case, it's not about Ethereum being cha- uh, changing. I think it's about like the fact that you know full nodes uh, in Ethereum are somewhat more difficult to run in, in Bitcoin, and like this uh, kind of convenience function doesn't uh, exist in Ethereum clients and so forth. Like, I mean, I think there definitely are differences between how the two communities you trust. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a matter of moving goalposts because I think the goalposts uh, kind of have been in that place all along, right? Like, I think. Uh, Ethereum people all along have known that, you know, if there is some situation that requires verification, then anyone can go to, um, go and verify. But uh, kind of in normal circumstances, people are kind of content to know that, you know, there is this, uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot of people that, um, that are checking uh, kind of any individual block. But if I'm to paraphrase what you said, essentially your message mm-hmm. is uh, if the approximate range was off, then you would have known and would have downloaded a node, a full node, and run it. But the question is, how do you know if the approximate range is right or wrong? I just know that I oh, like, well, I like I was, the 21 million Bitcoin. Whether or not there's disagreement. Um, like, if, uh, if some people had answered, you know, 160, like, First of all, like clearly, um, you know, at least one person would have answered honestly, right? Because there's different ways to calculate the total supply. There's a lot of different people running. There's different clients. And so the chance that like literally all of them would have been wrong and literally all of them would have been wrong in the exact same way is astronomically tiny. But right? if you look and at so, Lee on the fact checker's post, he listed off. 
I love Leon the Fat Checker. Where off, does that guy come from? I don't know, but he listed off like uh, six or seven different uh, sources of truth. Two right. of them were the script, and they were all different. Vitalik, if you don't, right. so they were different, and so more people started running scripts, um, and so like they um, ended up uh, uh, kind of actually converging on a number, right? Like, has, in, has Leon, has Leon the, the Fat Checker become your nemesis? Has Leon the Fat Checker become your nemesis? I don't know. Like, I, I he's mean, always that guy's kind of crazy, and I don't really care about him much anymore. But, <laughs> so why don't we do uh, this? Why don't we set a uh, block height in the future, and everyone will output what their findings of the, their supply? Bitcoin people will run theirs, and then Ethereum people will, will do theirs. You offer that, Vitalik? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely happy to do that. The gauntlet's laid down. Listen, look, this was great. We could go on forever, but um, we're going into areas I don't understand. So if I, if I don't understand it, I'm losing interest because I like to keep it in, like in my little simple terms and mm. and uh, for what my listeners listen out for. Um, Vitalik, it's great to finally meet you. Um, we'll make a Bitcoin show one day because uh, everyone interviews about Ethereum, but I'd mm-hmm. like to make a Bitcoin show with you. Samson, always good to see you. Uh, nothing changed here for me, Vitalik. I, I, I still don't have an interest in Ethereum, not because you haven't put good arguments, um, and I'm I don't dislike Ethereum as much as everyone else. It's just I have one use for money, which Bitcoin solves for me mm-hmm. right now. There's nothing mm-hmm. in Ethereum for me. That's not to say if I had to use a stablecoin, I wouldn't. Uh, I, if I had to and it was on Ethereum, I, I would use it. For me, I think what's really missing in Ethereum is like a strong philosophical mm-hmm. backbone. That's right. what it feels like is missing for me. A fo- strong philosophical backbone and... And I think that's what Bitcoin has. And this is why we just don't have yield farming and yams and this bullshit and that bullshit all, all existing on Bitcoin because it's very simple and it's focused on one thing, which is what I like about it. But perhaps that's what people love about Ethereum. Perhaps, perhaps Ethereum is just ready player one. It's a big game and it's not that yeah, I, mean, I, think, I don't know. That's fair to some extent. And I also think that, you know, it's to- like if you personally, like say, don't trust the ETH2 transition and you just kind of sit the whole thing out and, and then kind of come back and look three years later and see how, you know, like how things have stabilized, I think like that's another thing that's totally fair as well. Um, well, I'll keep, I'll keep looking at it. But like, I appreciate you both coming on. I'm definitely out of my depth for like 40% of this, but I, it's, it's always fun to mm-hmm. listen along. Um, this will be out. I'm going to put this out on Sunday as a bonus. Um, we'll stay in touch. I'm sure I'll speak to you both soon. Uh, thanks for coming on. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. All right. What did you think of that? Did you enjoy that? Do you think that cleared anything up for you? I expect for a lot of people it didn't really. I actually found this really useful. I, I did do my best to remain impartial throughout. And while I certainly wasn't convinced on a few of the Ethereum arguments which came from Vitalik, I am grateful for him to come on the show and discuss this, especially as I kind of trolled the shit out of him before. Um, so I do appreciate him coming on. That's very cool of him to do. The reality is with Ethereum is that personally, just for me, I don't have a use case for it. So that's why I don't really care about it. I, I buy a lot of the technical arguments that people make about it to me. But at the most fundamental level, I just don't have an, a use for it. Whereas Bitcoin is now part of my business and personal life. I use it on a nearly daily basis, definitely weekly, but nearly daily basis. And it solves a number of problems for me with money which Ethereum doesn't. And if Ethereum is kind of vying to be money, well, Bitcoin is better money. So I don't need fast transactions. I d- what I need is hard, sound money that I trust. I need that fixed supply. I need to be able to know that I can audit it. You know, I'm not going to do it as much as someone like Pierre Rochard, right? But knowing that it can be done is really reassuring for me. So then what is the use case for Ethereum? Like DeFi? I mean, I don't know how it works. It looks complicated. It looks like a bit of a game with a load of bullshit in there. And perhaps there's some real projects and people will make some arguments. 
I don't have time for it. All I need right now is solid, sound money. And Bitcoin does that for me better than Ethereum. So yes, I don't have a use case for Ethereum. But again, just thanks for Vitalik for coming on and discussing this. Also, a massive thanks to Samson too. He made some really key distinctions and he put the Bitcoin side of the argument across very well. Now, again, I didn't agree with everything and I thought some of the arguments weren't entirely fair. I think sometimes as Bitcoiners, we just, maybe some people, they just they have such a disdain for Ethereum that they'll throw anything at it. And I think it's a bit more important to be objective. Now, I know, I bet with this, some people are going to say, well, you shouldn't be giving a platform to scammers and even having the debate is, you know, bullshit. But look, the same people having the debate on Twitter. So what the fuck? This is my platform. I'll do it if I want. So yeah, I try to be fair. I'm actually going to get Vitalik back on one day, but we're only going to talk about Bitcoin. I think that'd be quite interesting. Everyone interviews him about Ethereum. I'd love to get his thoughts on Bitcoin. I think that'd be super interesting. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do pretty much reply to anyone unless you're just sending me some nonsense. But yeah, I pretty much reply to anyone. And before I close out, I just want to say, oh, massive thanks to everyone who gave me feedback and congratulated me on episode 250 go and check out episode two well it's actually two episodes there's the first part where i have a whole bunch of previous guests give, telling me one thing about bitcoin it's really fascinating go and check that out it's worth it for the intro with Giacomo alone and then i did a second show where i had like five people on talking about bitcoin right now they're definitely worth checking out also my other show defiance has got this really interesting new story on it i've been covering this heavy metal band for the last three months interviewing them about this Basically, they had this bus crash in 2015 where uh, it was a fatal accident, you know, a lot of very serious injuries. They took four years to recover, and they've allowed me to tell their story. It's called 1,333 Days. It's available at defiance.news. Honestly, I think it's the best work we've done. Definitely go check that out. Outside of that, yeah, if you want to reach out to me, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I will see you all next week.